Hello and welcome to episode 193 of the Juice Box Podcast. This is a bonus episode, so if you haven't, look back in your player for episode 192. It's there too. It's called Bolusing, Cursing, and Tacos. What you're about to hear was recorded live at the Southwest Ohio chapter of the JDRF. There, I spoke at their Type 1 Nation Summit to a room full of people. I'm telling you, there had to have been 500 people in that room. It was absolutely exhilarating. I can't wait to do more live events like that. You don't get the greatest audio from it, but you do get an amazing experience. So I want to thank the Southwest Ohio chapter for having me out. You guys ran probably the most well-attended, best-organized event I've ever been to. And being there made me want to do it more. This session will be recorded, and you can listen to it online on the Juicebox podcast. All right, now's the time you've been waiting for. It is our live Juicebox podcast, so I'm going to turn it over to none other than Mr. Scott Penner. Oh my gosh, that's very loud. Thank you so much for coming out for supporting the JDRF and for uh, being even remotely interested in some of the things I'm going to talk about. My daughter was diagnosed when she was two years old. She's 14 today. After a number of years of struggling with her A1C being in the eights and, you know, eventually you got an insulin pump, got it into the sevens, got a Dexcom, got it down a little farther, and then we got stuck. And then one day my nurse practitioner told us something that really just changed everything for me. I asked her, what's the hardest part? for you, your job. And she said it's to stop people from being afraid of insulin. If I could make people not be afraid of their insulin, they would have better outcomes. I took that very seriously. I thought about it for a long time. I wrote about it forever and ever online. And then one day I started a podcast. Now, the JDRF would like me to tell you, does anybody here listen to the show? Thank you. Nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before being bold with insulin or making any changes to your healthcare plan. We're going to interview Mark in just a second, and we're going to trans- kind of translate from Mark into some slideshow stuff. But just very quickly, that's my daughter Arden on the right when she was four, when her A1C was probably nine. And there she is last summer. She's 14 right now. Arden has no diet restrictions. Um, her A1C, and I only tell you this to you for the purposes of what we're doing here today, has been between 5'2 and 6'2 for the last five years. Arden eats everything you can imagine. Pancakes, waffles, Chinese food, all times of the day and night, and we manage to get that A1C through understanding how insulin works. So I'm going to invite Mark Lilly up. We're going to talk for a little bit about his story, and then I'm going to tell you a little more about how we handle Arden's blood sugar. So I'd like you to give a big round of applause to Mark. You want to sit? Yeah, I think so. Sitting. I'll look less short if Mark sits next to me. It's perfect. You have more hair. (laughs) So... The podcast is conversations with people just like you. As a matter of fact, has anyone in the room ever been on the podcast? Cool. So Mark, can you introduce yourself to everybody? Hi, everybody. My name is Mark Lurley. Uh, I'm a type 1 diabetic. I was diagnosed March 7, 2005, and I'm also the father of a type 1 diabetic. My son, Charlie, sitting over here, was diagnosed two years ago. Okay. So how old are you when you were diagnosed? I was 29 years old. 29. So that had to have been incredibly shocking. 
Yeah, so at the time I was a fighter pilot in the Navy. Um, I had been a pilot for about eight years, came back from my second deployment to Afghanistan and Iraq, and my wife and I were getting uh, ready to move to France for three years. I was going to do an exchange tour with the French Naval Air Force. So we were living in uh, beautiful Monterey, California, taking French classes for six months, five days a week. Not a bad, time, a bad way to spend your, your days. And so a couple things were happening and uh, ended up going into the hospital. And after a week in the hospital, um, I found out that I was a type 1 diabetic and that I would never fly again and I'd have to leave the Navy. So it was, it was devastating. So you might not know that um, Mark lost his pilot's license for certain crafts, right? Like there's some stuff you can still do? Yeah, as a, well you can, be a, you, you, can, you can get your uh, private pilot's license and be a type 1 diabetic and Scott has interviewed a, a, a pilot in a previous podcast. Um, you cannot be a commercial pilot and you certainly cannot be a military pilot with type 1 diabetes. Okay, so there are people in the world working towards changing that, and I actually interviewed a gentleman a few weeks ago who's one of them, and I don't know if you know, but very recently the laws have been overturned about CDL license. Uh, so you used to not be able to have one of those with type 1, but now you can. So people are always doing good work trying to move things like that forward. But I want to ask Mark, so you're diagnosed as an adult. I can't imagine you thought you were getting diabetes. Did you have any of this in your background, your history? No, no family history at all. Um, uh, in fact, the only, I guess the only history we had is uh, my father-in-law uh, is a PhD, and he worked on uh, diabetes-related medicines for years and years and years. And, but, but no family history of, of type 1 diabetes. And so we, a lot of medical background in my family and so, you know, as those who have type 1 di diabetes, you, you know the symptoms. I had the classic symptoms. I was urinating a lot, especially at night. Uh, there were times where I was get, getting confused, and I couldn't really explain it. And my vision went from 2010 to 2070. And so, um, you know, we had some conversations, my wife and I, and we talked to my parents and her parents. And so, um, we remember someone, one of them saying, you know, that sounds just like diabetes, but, you know, we, we just assumed type 2 diabetes, and I did not fit the profile of type, type 2 diabetes at all. So it, it really was a shock. Okay. So, and no other endo issues like uh, uh, celiac or hypothyroid, nothing at all. So, so Mark was blindsided, much like most of you, I imagine, were. Um, what did they give you in the hospital to start your management with? Did you leave with pens, with needles? Did anybody talk about an insulin pump? How did that go? Yeah, so it was interesting because I was not in a military hospital. I was in a civilian hospital in Monterey, and the endocrinologist actually thought I was a type 2 diabetic. So he sent me home with, uh, I think it was glipizide, which is a type 2 diabetes medication, and just said, you know, take this for a week and, and see if that has any impact on your blood sugars. And, of course, it didn't have any impact whatsoever. So after about a week of doing that, we went back in, and then they obviously discovered that I was not a type 2 diabetic. I was type 1. And so I left this facility at that point with, uh, you know, pen, pen needles and those type of things, some relatively basic instructions. Um, and we were, we were kind of left to our own devices. And it was frightening. It was absolutely frightening. So there was no, this is how insulin works, or this is what you should be. It was count your carbs, inject this insulin, wait three hours, test. That, that was pretty much it. I, you know, I, I'd characterize it as they gave us a bunch of pamphlets. They, they fed us a whole lot of information that we just could not necessarily ingest. We were not in the right mental state to be able to do so. And, and, and I felt like we were dealing with people that were not used to type 1 diabetes whatsoever. So 
Here's what I think. I think that doctors know you're overwhelmed when you're first diagnosed, and they give you what I call don't die advice. It's just enough advice that you won't die. <laughs> you know, you can't hurt yourself too much with the insulin. It's not about keeping your blood sugar in level. They don't tell you how things work. And it's probably fair, right? You're overwhelmed. You're probably confused. A lot's going on. The problem is that in subsequent visits, it doesn't get ratcheted down at all places. Some, some endos do an amazing job, but more often than not, you get what you got, which is go figure it out for yourself, do your best, and how did you do in the beginning? So, it, you know, it was rough because it wasn't just, you know, trying to understand diabetes and, and deal with the physical aspects of it. It was, I, you know, for me personally, I had to deal with, with the mental part of it, not just diabetes, but the fact that, you know, I, being a fighter pilot is all I'd wanted to do in my life. I mean, since I was a little kid, I had always known and always wanted to do that. And, and suddenly, without any warning, that was taken away from me. And there was nothing I can do about it. And, and that was, you know, for, for several months after that, it was, it was devastating. I mean, I was in a, what I would consider a fairly severe um, state of depression and, and really didn't know what to do. But at the same time, I had to learn how to take care of myself. And, and you know, I'm blessed with a wonderful wife and an incredibly supportive family who was you know, able to, to, to do that with me. So I knew I wasn't alone, and, and without them, there's just, you know, there's just no way I'd be here. And so I think what Mark is characterizing here is that he was afraid, just like he probably should have been, and he needed some sort of support. So what I'm gonna tell you is that no matter where you get your support from, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to ignore you all over here. No matter where you get your support from, it has to come from somewhere. You have to have some sense of community. There are people who, live in the middle of nowhere who listen to the podcast and they think of the people that they listen to every week as their, their community. It could be a friend, a neighbor, it could be someone here for the JDRF, but I really want to implore you, it is very important to be connected to someone else and to not feel alone. But that's not the entirety of what you need, but it's a really good start. The next thing you need is the fear aspect. It, it has to go away at some point. So I'm gonna ask Mark about something because I think Mark probably has an experience overcoming fear like no other. I don't know about the rest of you, but this man can get into a machine and make it fly off the ground. To me, that sounds incredibly frightening. Uh, I would never do that. I think he's probably crazy, but that's fine. Okay, but, but I want to know about that. I want to know about when you're faced with incredible fear, what are the steps you take to get past it? Yeah, you know, I don't know if I've got a, uh, a, a recipe, if you will, that I can share. But, what, you know, what I do remember is I had never flown before. So I graduated from college and, and, and became an officer a few days later and went down to Pensacola for flight school. And I remember, you know, I'd, I'd take my lunches by the runway and I would sit and watch these pilots learning how to fly and they would start the engine and, you know, off they went. And I just, I just thought, like, you know, how the heck do they know how to do this? It seemed... It seemed so impossible and so daunting. And then I started going through some of the academics of how to fly, and then I started learning some of the basics of flying and doing my first flight. And then I realized, like anything else, you gain confidence through experience. And so I learned how to fly a turboprop aircraft. And then I went to do initial jet training, and I thought the same thing again. Oh my gosh, how do these guys and gals do that? And then again, I just started, you know, so with some of the basics and you improve and you improve and then you get to a point where you feel like you're you're very confident you, you know you you really understand how to operate in an ambiguous environment and you actually look forward um to, to taking some additional steps so I, I felt like that when it came to diabetes eventually when i was diagnosed that it was so incredibly daunting and and how am i going to have to incorporate this into my life but just like you know i reverted back to when i was in flight school it's not something i knew initially 
but as I learned more, I gained confidence, and I just and I felt like that's what, what was the secret for me to control my A1Cs, to make sure they were less volatile, and to make sure that I could incorporate type 1 di diabetes into my life without having it um, rule my life, if that makes sense. And I'm going to be here today, and we're going to talk a little bit about how to translate those ideas to type 1. Because it is very true, this is all about experiences that you have to have over and over again until you don't have to think about them anymore. And that is hard to imagine for some of you maybe, but it comes, it really does. I sit before you, I, I tell you I was standing in my shower crying most days when my daughter was diagnosed at two. I didn't know what she was doing. I couldn't figure out what was happening. 12 years ago, no Dexcom. She had a little tiny meter and some needles and that was the whole thing. She weighed 18 pounds when she was diagnosed. And I spent most of my time in that unsure place. It took me a long time to realize that all the things that I would have back then characterized as mistakes or problems ended up being the learning experiences that I needed to make better decisions moving forward. The one thing you have to do for yourself is lose that verbiage that says, I messed up, that this was a mistake. It's not. It's always just data for next time. It's just incredibly important. So Mark, like, how many years after you were diagnosed was Charlie diagnosed? Yes, so Charlie, uh, who's somewhere around here, he should be sitting here, but he's a rascal. So I apologize if he's underneath your table right now. Um, he was diagnosed in December of 2016, so my family and I were living in Singapore, and we woke up one morning and he had, he had wet the bed, which is extremely unusual. And so uh, later in that day, we were getting ready to fly to Cambodia. So we we're gonna take a four-day vacation with our, with our kids to Phnom Penh. And so um, I actually, my wife and I decided to test him using my uh, glucometer, and, and, I, and then I saw the number, and we knew right away he was in the 400s. We knew right then and there that he was a type 1 diabetic. And, and I tell you, when I was diagnosed, um, when I was a pilot, that was the second most devastating moment in my life. The, you know, the, the, the most devastating moment is when Charlie was diagnosed because it's, it was one thing for me as an adult. You know, I had achieved my dream, and it was difficult to transition, um, but I was able to do that. It, it's a whole other ballgame, a whole other ballgame when your child is diagnosed with this disease. So, you know, even though Heather and I were, were very experienced with type 1 diabetes, there was a lot of relearning that we had to do. Um, you know, with a child now who has it, it which is a far different experience than, than when I was diagnosed. So, uh, you know, we, we, we actually, it's a little bit of a funny story, but we ended up going to the endocrinologist, uh, and, and, you know, he's, we told him, we're leaving for Cambodia later this afternoon, you know, what should we do? And he said, listen, I would, never, <laughs> I would never do this with another family, but, you know, Heather, you're a nurse. Mark, you've had type 1 diabetes for years. You guys really understand this? So let me go ahead and give you some of the basic equipment. You guys go to Cambodia and have yourself a great time. And that's exactly what we did. And, and we're thankful for it. And we're, we're, we're lucky, we're fortunate. Maybe not, I wouldn't recommend that to most people, uh, to go to Cambodia, you know, the same day that your child is diagnosed. But, but it's also, that's how we've chosen to incorporate type, type 1 diabetes in our life. We don't let it control us. We're very much in the driver's seat. And, and that would be one piece of advice I would, I would give folks in the room here today. I, I would have to add to that that as maybe delicate as Arden looks in her picture, I'm not sure, that little kid was two wins away from going to the Little League World Series last year. So she plays softball in incredible heat, 100 degrees, three, four, five times a day, starting at six in the morning and not ending sometimes till seven. She does that without crazy lows and 
I really do think that Mark's words should echo in your mind, that there's nothing you can't do. It's tough sometimes. Let's make fun of Mark for a minute. It's tough sometimes for a handsome man here who can find a plane, sits in front of you, and tells you, this is all doable, right? I even think, well, I can't fly a plane. This guy must be smarter than me somehow, right? But the truth is, around diabetes, it doesn't matter. That's why they brought me here. If I can do it, you can all do it, right? I'm telling you, there's nothing special about me. I'm not good at math. I wasn't a very good student. All I know is how to use insulin. And I'm kind of good at explaining it to other people, too. So we're going to get to that part. But I really want you to believe moving forward that when you have the right tools and the right understanding, the sky is absolutely the limit. It 100% it is. I want to ask you, do you guys use pumps, or um, what kind of technology do you use? Yeah, we do. We use insulin pumps. Both Charles and I have the same pump. Okay. And are you using a glucose monitor? We do. Yeah. We use the Medtronic 670G, so the closed-loop system. Okay. And my daughter uses a Dexcom G6. I'm going to tell you that the data that comes back from the glucose monitors makes what I'm going to talk about later a lot easier. It's not, not doable without the technology. It just takes longer without it because you're a little more blind than you would be with it. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your management style? Do you, I, I know already, but Mark, you don't shoot for the same A1C I shoot for, right? Yeah, and I think it's, listen, I think the important point um, is, listen, there's a range of A1Cs that are acceptable. And I think what you, what each person needs to do, what each family needs to do is decide what is, what is good for you? How do you want to manage this? You can be all over this 24-7. Actually, for those of you who were in the previous sessions here, uh, you know, I sat through the one, uh, Chris, who's the uh, power lifter. Uh, Chris really manages this very strong. But even, you know, he said, you know, he fluctuates between about 6.5 and maybe a little over 7. That's exactly where I try to be. That works for me. Um, it, it allows me to do the things that I want to do in life without making it so overburdensome and, and having to think about it so much. The beauty of the technology out here, whether it's Medtronic or Dexcom or, or anything else, you, you want the technology to do the work for you so it doesn't manage your life, right? You're managing your own life. And, and that's what Charlie and I have done. So that, that was the reason that we put him on the pump that he's on, so that he can see me go through all the same motions and you know, insertions and sensors and all that kind of stuff. And, and quite honestly, some, there's times where we, we share some of the same uh, pump supplies, which is, has a nice well, financial bank. It's fine. Uh, hopefully, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but, but it, it just it makes it much easier. And then, and then Heather and I are both very, very comfortable um, with managing with the pump that I have, which makes it that much more comfortable managing the same pump that he has. And I want you to be sure, and please hear me when I say this, don't imagine my daughter's blood sugar is at 85, 24 hours a day. It is not. Her blood sugar spikes a couple of times a day, 150, 180, we get it back pretty quickly, and we keep her at a lower number. You know, I'm, I don't worry about being low. I don't start thinking about low till 70. But that's... That it's not a perfect system. I don't want you to think that her blood sugar just goes like this and it's magic. It's not. She'll eat something, we'll miss a little bit on the insulin, but then we readdress. And I'll talk about it later, and maybe you guys can incorporate a little bit into your life. Mark, I want to thank you very, very much for doing this. Thanks, Scott. Thank you very much. Do you guys accept blood sugars that are higher than you want because you're afraid of lows that happen to anybody? I understand that completely. And you probably should be a little concerned. Diabetes is not easy, and insulin is to be respected, but it is not to be feared. The problem is, is that when you err on the side of caution, you're always going to be a little higher than you want to be. 
and then you sort of get used to it, right? Like, you know, a lot of people get told at the doctor's office that you're fine anywhere between 80 and 200. They tell you that a lot when you're diagnosed. The problem is that that makes 200 seem in range. When meanwhile, that's double what somebody in the audience who doesn't have diabetes is. The problem is when you get to 200, then you start thinking, well, 220 is okay. It's so close to 200. And you sort of talk yourself into it eventually. The key to this is understanding how the insole works in your body. It is the entirety of it. If you leave here not remembering anything, remember this. You have to pre-bolish your food. And the entirety of managing type 1 diabetes is timing and amount. It is the right amount of insulin given at the right time. All of the other variables don't matter as much as timing and amount. We're going to talk about it, try to make sense of it for you. These are not mine. I stole them offline. The one on the left is with a post from a mother who said, I can't figure out diabetes. No matter what I do, this is what happens. And that's just diabetes, she said. I'll never forget that she said that. That's just diabetes. So what I did was I eliminated carbs out of my kid's diet. Now look how good they do. And I thought, well, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun not eating carbs, because carbs are fun. As you can see, I've had a carb before, and they're a lot of fun. That's just diabetes. I am here to tell you that's not just diabetes. When she says that, when anyone says that, what they mean is, I don't really know how the insulin works, and I'm doing my best, and I'm trying, but I just can't get it right, and I need to cut myself a break, so I'm going to put it on somebody else or something else. I'm going to put it on diabetes. It's just incredibly important to know that if your blood sugar goes up out of nowhere, it is not the magic diabetes fairy that came along and tapped you on the head. So now I'm going to tell you a story about M&Ms, and I'm going to hope that by the end of this, I'm going to be your M&M story. A very long time ago, my daughter and I were in her endocrinologist appointment, and the, it was before glucose monitors, right as Dexcom was getting started, and she said, are you guys going to get a Dexcom? And I said, I don't know what that is. And she said, well, there's a 17-year-old boy in the practice. He got one because he wants to eat M&Ms without his blood sugar going all over the place. It tells me that what happens is the boy goes out, he buys these little packs of M&Ms, the ones you get at the register by the cashier, and he buys a bunch of them. And the first day he goes home, he gives himself his insulin like he always does. He eats the M&Ms, and he watches what his blood sugar does. It went up. So the next day he gave himself more insulin, and it went up less. And the next day he gave himself more insulin, and it went up less, but then it got low. So the next day, he gave himself the insulin sooner, but a little less, and it went up less, and it didn't get low. And he kept doing that for a week until one day he put the insulin in, ate the M&Ms, and his blood sugar just stayed like this. And when she told me that, I thought, well, that means it's possible. If he can do it with M&Ms, you can do it with anything. I'm going to figure out how to do it with everything. So you have to stay off the diabetes roller coaster. You can't be chasing your blood sugar around. That sounds easy for me to say, but it's true. That begins with pre-bolusing your insulin. Those of you who are injecting, pre-bolusing is just a word people with pumps use to indicate they've given themselves their insulin before they start eating. Does everyone here understand that when you put the insulin in your body, it doesn't immediately start bringing your blood sugar down? You do. But do you know how long it takes you individually for it to work? Is it five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes? How long do you think your insulin takes to work? 30 minutes. Does anybody else know? Anybody have a number they think? How long? An hour. This kid takes an hour. Thank you. An hour. It's different for everybody. First thing you need to do, not be afraid. Second thing you need to do, remember that it's about timing and amount. And once you know those things in your head, you're going to go home and figure out how long it takes for your insulin to start working. 
I can't tell you how long it's going to be. But get yourself in a position where you haven't had insulin for a few hours, you haven't had food for a few hours, and your blood sugar's pretty stable, you know, under 200, and give yourself an amount of insulin you think will bring you down to 100. And then if you have a glucose monitor, wait for the arrow to turn down. And if you don't, test yourself every 10 minutes or so and see, when do I start dropping? And that's probably pretty close to your pre-bolus time. Because what you want to accomplish, everybody in a tug of war, right? The option of tug of war is one side pulls, the other side pulls, somebody wins. Diabetes tug of war, you want no one to win. You want the flag to stay in the middle, never go to one side, never go to the other. You can't accomplish that if you put your insulin in and then eat. You give the carbs a head start. By the time they're moving, they have so much momentum, you can't overcome them. Even if that amount of insulin you chose was exactly right, it's still not going to work because the carbs have a head start. So what you need is for them to get in a battle that just doesn't move. And here's how I think of it in my mind. I'm sorry about the mic. So the mic is here and it's the insulin. I put the insulin in, it starts working. It goes along a timeline. Then we put the carbs in. The insulin's already pulling down. Then the food tries to pull up. This is where they get caught in the battle. They're pulling and pulling and neither side can win. And at the end, they both get tired and you're back where you started. The problem that you have if you're spiking is you put your insulin in too late. The food got a head start, you jumped way up. Now the food's being di digested by your body. Eventually, the food leaves your system. And what's still left in your body when the food's gone? The insulin that you put in too late. And then you get incredibly low. If you put your insulin in too soon, you get low first. If you had the nerve to wait at a blood sugar of 65, eventually that food would catch and bring you back up again. I do my best for my daughter's blood sugar to be falling when she starts to eat. You will all figure out what's best for you. I'm not telling you that what I do is exactly right. But I try for that battle between insulin and food to happen at as low of a blood sugar as I think is safe. Because if you don't, you're just not going to win that fight. Okay, I can tell you this for sure. If your blood sugar is high, you have mistimed or miscalculated your insulin. And if your blood sugar is low, you have mistimed or miscalculated your insulin. There are other reasons, but this is the, this is the key. It's absolutely the key, and it's simple to fix. I want to tell you about Rosa, who's not here. Rosa put a, um, a post on, online the other day, and it was her 22-year-old daughter's Insta, um, Dexcom graph. It went from 60 to 400 like this, like a smile and a pumpkin. And I reached out to her and I said, I think if you call me, I can fix this in a half an hour of talking. So a stranger called my house. Her and her daughter were on a conference call. We talked about the things you and I are going to talk about here today. And 23 hours later, she sent me a graph where her daughter hadn't been below 85 or over 120. And today she sent me another graph with her daughter ate a bagel and didn't go over 140 or below 100. So this is not rocket science. I know it feels like it is because you get the information in such little pieces. You get a little bit when you're first diagnosed and it feels like someone just hit you in the head with a shovel. It's hard to think. And then you think you remember some of it and you go to the next part. And then someone tells you something else. And somebody online will tell you, oh, you need more temp basling. Have you tried an extended bolus? And none of this stuff makes sense. And the truth is the further you get away from starting with this concept, the more those things are just going to end up confusing you and making things more difficult. The reason I bring that up is because a lot of people spend a lot of time wondering what's going on. My blood sugar is going up. I wonder what happened. I'll wait an hour, one more hour, three hours. Wow, it's not coming down. I should do something about it.
bring your blood sugar down. When your blood sugar goes up, bring it down. When your blood sugar goes down, bring it up. Do not wait around wondering what it on. Because sure, maybe you're sick, or maybe you are dehydrated, but it doesn't matter. What matters is your blood sugar's high. Do something about it. Because you're gonna have, ex you're gonna have experiences and as crazy as it sounds, these experiences start building on each other, and eventually it just makes sense. The other day, my daughter's endocrinologist asked me what my daughter's uh, insulin to carb ratio was, and I said, I have no idea. I haven't looked at that in years. We don't even count carbs. I just look at the plate, and I think, that's seven units. That's 10 units. It's 10, it's six. It's probably a 10-unit bolus. We'll do 70% of it now, and the rest over an hour. I haven't thought about counting carbs in so long. And it's such a great thing to get away from because it stinks to count carbs. It's no fun at all. There's no fun planning to eat. That's one of the worst things about diabetes is having to think about it and count your food and am I gonna eat all this? Am I hungry? It doesn't matter. I look at the plate, we put in the insulin. If we're wrong, we readdress it. That's it. Anybody in here ever been in a fist fight? Anybody want to admit to have ever been in a fist fight? You, man? Yeah? <laughs> I'm so sorry. He's so little. I thought it would be an adult. Um, you <laughs> Don't hit people, okay? Um, here's the thing. You want to hit first. You do not want to get punched in the face and then have to fight because you're dizzy and you don't know what happened. When you go first, when you act, then you know what happens next came from what you did. So it's sort of a mathematical formula that I've made up that doesn't have numbers in it. I did this, this happened, I wanted this to happen, so next time I will do a little more insulin, a little less insulin, a little sooner, a little later. Because then you can at least say, I bolused and I got low. There's cause and effect that you can actually trust. A woman the other day was telling me, my daughter gets low whenever she works out. I said, well, that's crazy. My daughter exercises like crazy. She doesn't get low from exercise. So she does. She starts to work out and she gets low. So we start talking about it. And what ends up happening is she has this theory about eating before she works out. And when I looked at it, I just know you're, she's mistiming her bolus for the food. Her blood sugar's shooting up. She's working out. Then the blood sugar is getting hit by the insulin that's mistimed and she gets low. And in her mind, it was because of the workout. I want you to be able to say, I did this and this happened, because that's the only way to make an adjustment and move forward. It's incredibly important. Don't react, act. Okay, for pumpers, if you're bolusing too often, your basal rate's too low. That's it, move your basal up. Kids are gonna grow quickly, okay? You're not gonna notice it happening because they're your kids. For instance, I lost some weight to come here today, but nobody in my house noticed. That's fine. So my daughter comes home from school in the beginning of the year last year and tells me that her math teacher sucks and can't teach. And she's in algebra. And at the end of the year, my daughter understands algebra just great. And I said, well, there must have been some magical day during the year where your math teacher got good at it, right? And they taught you some magical thing that taught you about algebra. She said, no, I don't know what happened. I just know it now. It wasn't her, though. And I was like, okay. <laughs> she's really something. And, um, and so I think that that really is the key about how we learn. Things happen slowly, you don't see them happening. Kids grow and you don't see it happening. You gain 10 pounds, you don't see it happening. If you're bolusing a lot, your basal's too low. You need more insulin. What did we say before? It's either not enough insulin or it's mistimed. If your basal's too low, it's not enough insulin and it's mistimed across the entire day. It's all about timing and amount. 
If you are injecting and you're using a slow-acting insulin, how long did they tell you the slow-acting insulin lasts in your body? Would you inject it once a day, last 24 hours? That's <clears throat> not true. Okay, so what you want to do is split it in half. If you're having trouble at the end of your day and your blood sugar is getting high and you inject, your basal insulin is probably running out or becoming less effective. If you split the dose and do it every 12 hours, again, I'm not a doctor, uh, you'll find the balance. But if you do your slow-acting insulin every 12 hours, you might have a little better luck. That's an MDI tip from me to you. Okay, all carbs are not created equal. Eating a slice of pizza is different than having a salad with some croutons in it. It is because heavier, more dense carbs sit in your system longer and they are broken down slower. When you eat pizza and your blood sugar gets high three hours later, that was not the diabetes fairy. That's when your body started breaking down the pizza and it started going to your blood. So you might have to say, all right, well, I start eating pizza and it hits me a little bit, but I don't get high until two hours later. What do I do? What you do is you figure out how to time the insulin against the carbs. I can't tell you what that is, but I can tell you that if you try, you'll figure it out. Some people use extended boluses. I'm going to explain to you right now. My daughter has uh, Chinese food. I don't know how much she's going to eat. It's General's chicken, white rice, vegetables. Is she going to have three pieces of General's chicken? How much? I couldn't tell you. What I know is that most times my daughter needs 12 units of insulin to eat Chinese food. That's what I know. So when I start, we pre-bolus, I get her blood sugar running down, and I get that 12 units in. I don't know how much she's going to eat, so I pre-bolus eight of those units, and I tell the other four units to go in over the next hour. That way I've got a shot to bail on it if I want to, right? Maybe she starts eating and she goes, oh, this stinks. My daughter does the most disgusting thing when she's eating. She says she has a limit. She doesn't know it till there's food in her mouth. So she goes, mm, nope, that was it. And then she takes a napkin. It's horrible. Takes it out of her mouth and decrees that lunch is over. If that happens and I gave her 12 units and she's only eaten three quarters of what I imagined she was going to eat, I cancel her extended bolus. Or I use a combination of a temp basal rate. I'll double her basal rate for a couple of hours. This is important. We do this thing with pumps, it's weird. Every day at two o'clock, my basal rate's 1.4, it's 5.6, that's so stupid. Why would your body need the same amount of insulin just because it's two o'clock? It doesn't make any sense. You have to stay fluid. If you're having more carb-heavy things, you might need more basal insulin. You might need a 30% increase for hours. It might be a 50% increase for hours. I don't know, figure it out. Don't wait around and say that's just diabetes or I can't eat Chinese food, don't do that. This is very important. You have to trust yourself and the diabetes experiences you've had before. You have to trust your gut. You have to, have to, have to. You can't say, but the doctor told me this, so I'm going to keep doing it. If I taught you how to drive, and I said that you only put 20 pounds per square inch on the brake, and you somehow could measure that, and you're driving along, coming towards a tree, and you put your 20 pounds on, and the car keeps going, it keeps going, it keeps going. Do you go, oh, the guy that taught me how to drive said this is going to be okay, and drive into the tree? No. You press on the brake harder. The doctors have done their best to explain to you the basics, and it's up to you to keep going to understand. When you do that, this gets incredibly easy. And I don't say that lightly. But I don't think about, well today I do, but I don't think about diabetes for more than about 10 minutes a day. My daughter and I speak about it through text messages mostly. It does not encompass a bunch of my time. I don't stare at her glucose monitor. We are not crazy about it. Arden is, what well, I just said, she's a freshman, right? So I started figuring this stuff out when maybe second grade. 
So the last time my daughter was to the school nurse was the last day of second grade. She has not been to the school nurse since then. We do everything through text messages. I watch her blood sugar, she watches her blood sugar, and we talk together, usually for a couple seconds. Hey, do a half a unit, do a temp basil off for a half hour, drink a half of a juice, that kind of stuff. Her range on her Dexcom is between 70 and 130. And we most of the time stay in that range. It's because highs cause lows. When your blood sugar's high, you use too much insulin, eventually it makes you low. If you never get high, you don't get low. So if I give her that insulin for the Chinese food and she hits 130 and starts going like this, we bump it back down again. We stop the arrows. That's what we call it. I'm like, stop that arrow. It might be a unit, it might be a half a unit, it might be a temp basil, we stop the arrow and bring it back. And then for another driving analogy, because they're so exciting, um, when you're driving and, you know, there are young people in here, you guys are going to get taught how to drive at some point, you're going to drift a little to one side and the person sitting next to you is going to have a stroke and be like, the other way! And you are going to overcompensate and end up 20 feet this way. It is going to happen. It happens to everybody. But once you become a seasoned driver, you realize that when you see that line coming, your hands move almost an imperceivable amount to get you back to where you want to be. And when you do that, you don't overcorrect. And if you keep yourself in a situation with your blood sugar where small corrections do the job, then you don't see a bunch of overcorrections. And you don't end up high, and you don't end up low most of the time. But if you end up high, do something about it. Get it back down. You might have to crush that high with insulin and be prepared to catch it with a fast-acting um, carb later. That might be what you have to do, but that's better than being high for four hours. So it's all just learning how to manipulate the insulin. You're going to have these experiences over and over again. At some point, if you want to be able to look at a plate and go, that's 15 units, you have to trust what you've learned in the past. You have to trust yourself. I talk to a lot of people privately, and at the end of every conversation, what I end up telling most people is you have to trust your gut. Go with what you think. I know we're taught to listen to cops and doctors and teachers without question. And please, if it's a cop, put your hands up, especially nowadays, hands way up, okay? But, um, but the rest of the guys, you can say why. You can wonder a little bit. Again, take care of it first. Don't wonder why. I saw Johnny sniffling this morning. That must be it. Who cares? Blood sugar's high. Get it down. Maybe he's dehydrated. Don't care. Get it down. Doesn't matter to me. Think about it later. Later, it's a learning experience. Right now, get your blood sugar down. Any of you have um, glucose monitors? There's, yeah. There's a study uh, that's proven that the lower you raise your high threshold, the lower your A1C will be. And it really is what I just talked about. It's about reacting soon enough that it doesn't get out of hand. So if you have a glucose monitor, don't think of the beeping as annoying. Get it down. Bring it down to 150 and try. When it gets to 150, bring it back a little bit. It's incredibly important. I, if you don't have a glucose monitor, these things are still valuable. Don't think this is a sales pitch that you have to go get a glucose monitor. It makes it easier. I'm not going to lie to you. But it's still doable. There are plenty of people who do it. You can do it without a pump but you're going to inject more. Here's what a pump brings you that injections don't have. If you have a pump, you can manipulate your basal insulin, which is incredibly helpful, and you don't have to inject. Other than that, MDI is the same thing. But being able to see uh, 60 blood sugar that kind of comes up and sits at 70 and 75, and you haven't had insulin for a while, you haven't had food for a while, you really don't want to eat, you know you can just shut your basal insulin off for a half hour, and a lot of times that fixes it. That is a valuable tool for pumping.
But it's not that none of this can't be done with injections. It's just going to take more injections. If you're not bothered by injecting more frequently, don't worry about it. But you have to be ready to be able to say, this meal takes 10 units. Oh gosh, my insulin's going up. I need two more. You've got to be willing to inject again 20 minutes later, half an hour later, something like that. I know people tell you not to stack insulin, but if you have a glucose monitor, you're just addressing something that went wrong. You're not, you're not stacking insulin. Okay, parents, incredibly important. Exhaustion comes, you don't notice it happening. When it gets there, you don't know you're lost in it. It, it is detrimental to everything in your life. Please, if you're in a two-parent household, make sure someone else understands. Do not be afraid if you're the primary caregiver to look at the other one and say, hey, it's Friday and I'm going to bed and good luck. Because if you don't do that, you're going to go a little crazy and you're going to argue about a lot of things that later you'll look back on and they're pretty stupid. So please be very aware of that. The exhaustion just overwhelms things. It's, it's absolutely crazy. Okay, this is important and it's not anti-doctor, so don't throw me in JDRF prison. But sometimes people say no because they don't know. It's hard to say I don't know. My children ask me things all the time that I tell them no to. It is because I don't know the answer to their questions. My daughter was once at a pump class, like I'm sure many of you have been, we're gonna pick a pump and they're all laid out like Christmas gifts everywhere. And I said to my wife back in the corner of this room, literally on a dusty table, there was a box that looked like someone threw it there. This is a long time ago and it was an, I walked over and looked and it was an Omnipod. And I said to the nurse, I'm like, why is this one not out with the rest of them? And she was, you don't want that. And I was like, are you sure? And she's like, yeah, you don't want that. Your daughter's too lean. And I was like, okay, the cannula goes in on an angle. She said, I forget. She gave me 17 reasons why I wanted one of those other pumps. But I thought Omnipod looked like the way to go, so I did it. Two years later, leaving an appointment, she pulled me aside and apologized. And she said, we told you not to get the Omnipod because we didn't have any experience with it. We didn't think we could support you. That's what she said. Now we're giving it to all the kids, blah, 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 and whatever. But they told me no in that moment because they didn't know how to support me. So if you walk in there and say, I want to get a pump, or I want to get a glucose monitor, and they say, no, you have to have diabetes for a year before you do that. Say, why? I want to try a different insulin. No, no, stick with that one. Why? Because I think what you're going to find next is there's no answer. You should advocate for yourselves. You should do what you think is right. These are not magical people. You live with diabetes. You know what you want. It is incredibly important to advocate for yourself. Oop, sorry. Okay, now this is a blown up view of a breakfast. So it's gonna look crazier than it is, but I want you to believe me when I tell you that this encompasses about five minutes of my overall thought over an hour. This is from a couple of years ago. So at this point, her high was still set at 160. Now you would, it would be down here. And this low is actually at 80 right now. Now we're at 70, would it be a little lower? So my daughter's having a sleepover with a bunch of friends. She gets low in the middle of the night. I get up and I just shut off her basil. And that's what it did. So I didn't give her any juice. I didn't do anything else. I shut her basil off for a little while. Her blood sugar came back up. Now the girls were sleeping in, as you can see here, because they were up late last night. But I knew because of her friend Shay, who the night before said, Mr. Bunner, can we have French toast in the morning? And I was like, sure, Shay, that'll be great. And can I have chocolate milk? And I was like, yeah, sure. Why don't we just put piles of sugar on it? And one girl goes, like powdered sugar? And I was like, yeah, okay, yep, that's what we'll do. We had bananas, grapes, chocolate milk, powdered sugar, French toast, everything. While my daughter was sleeping, I started bumping her blood sugar. I got it to come down. She woke up in here somewhere. I started cooking here. We put in a unit. We started to get a down arrow. Then the food came in. So we put in more insulin. Got it to come down more. 
Now she starts adding powdered sugar, which I thought she wasn't going to do, so we upped her basil rate. It seems like it's a lot, but I'm going to tell you in the end. Then she says, can I have more French toast? And I was like, yeah, let's go for it. So we put in more insulin. There it is at noon. 97 with a finger stick, not just the CGM. All I did is balance the insulin with the food. That's all I did. There's nothing else to it. I promise you. It's hard to kind of understand in a half an hour, but... I'm proud of the podcast because this was a little stilted with Mark here because I've never done this live before, although it was fun. But what will happen is someone will come on, like Ryan, and we'll talk, and things will come out. Haley, where you at? She comes on and she talks, and things come out. It's not planned. If I told you that I didn't even plan what I was going to say to you here today, please take that as the truth. I think that these natural conversations are important. I think that during every hour podcast, we come up with a couple of things that you'll come away with and think, wow, that really relates to me. Much like the algebra, it takes time to get. You're not going to leave here today like Superman and make all these fixes. But if you leave here today knowing that it's about the timing and the amount, and that you have to pre-bolus a meal or it's not going to go your way, and then think about the rest of this, I promise you this stuff happens. It is incredibly simple. Blown up here, it looks like an hour's worth of thinking. But I guarantee you that what happened was I was cooking, and I said, okay, pre-bolus this and do a temp basil. Here comes the food. Put on the other four units. Nowadays, she's bigger. I would, that would probably be a pre-bolus of five units and five more units later. And I was stretching it out to try to cover the bread. And I was stretching it out because the chocolate, I was like, chocolate milk? She never drinks chocolate milk. It was that other little girl talking about chocolate milk. And so, but when my daughter looked at me, I was like, yeah, drink the chocolate milk. Here we go. I never, ever, ever counted a carb there. Never. I'm going to ask if you guys have any questions. I'm happy to answer. And if not, I'll keep going. But just real quickly. Uh, the podcast is 100% free. It's available for iPhone or Android. iPhone has a native app called Podcast that you can just use. Android, Spotify, or you have to find an Android app. It's also at juiceboxpodcast.com. If you listen, that'd be great. If you don't, don't sweat. But I appreciate you letting me speak. Does anyone have any questions at all? I'm happy to answer anything that anybody might be able to think of. Hi. You're going to have to, <laughs> ready? Yeah, that's not going to work. But you have to figure it out for yourself. So earlier, I know I said a lot, and I'm from the East Coast, so I was talking really quick. Uh, but um, I said it early in the beginning. You're going to have to go home and figure out what that is. Get her blood sugar stable somewhere where there's no insulin, no food. Put in a big bolus and see how long it takes to move. And then from there, it's... I try, it's the M&M story then. I put it in here, it didn't work. Tomorrow I'll try it a little sooner. Tomorrow I'll try a little later. Tomorrow I'll try a little more, a little less. There is one thing you can do to make it easier on yourself, which is make similar meals over a weekend. Similar breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Take out the variables so there's less to think about, and then just keep, keep swinging at it. Try it one lunch, and then the next day go, okay, it got a little higher than I thought. Try it again the next day at the next lunch. Somebody else? Hi. Mm-hmm. So I handle, my daughter and I handle her diabetes and my wife, my, my wife's doing a great job today while I'm not home. We do it the, way, the same way I think about parenting, which is I have never 
I don't think there's a light switch fix to diabetes stuff. I don't think there's something you say or do or read that just makes it all make sense. And I don't expect my kids to figure life out in one day. So she and I do it together. We talk out loud about it while we're doing it most days. Plus, most of it's done through text messages. So she gets to see it happen. And what I see is that slowly over time, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say, hey, how much do you think that is? And she'll guess about what I was thinking. So my goal is just for her to learn it at her own pace. Um, there's a podcast early on in the show called Texting Diabetes. Texting is the absolute most important tool in type 1 besides the, the pumps and the CGMs as far as I'm concerned because it limits the amount of time you're talking. I'll tell you right now that um, when she was much younger, back in second grade, I was downstairs very lazily on my sofa and her CGM beeped and she needed a half unit of insulin. And I didn't want to get up and she was upstairs with some friends playing so I texted her, bolus a half a unit. And she said, okay. And I was like, oh my God, that was easy. And then I started, I started worrying, like what if she didn't do it, right? So I found a reason to look and I was like, oh, she did it, half a unit, it's great. And then it hit me about 20 minutes later, the only difference between me being in the room with her and not being in the room with her was my fear. If I let that fear go, it didn't matter where she was in the world. She could be across the street at the house or at school, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, you're never going to the nurse again. And that's what we did. You have to wait till they're at enough of an age where they, you can be confident that they're going to do what you ask. But it's, it's that. And I think it's just time. I think that if anybody thinks that there's a, a light switch health issue, I think that is a very kind of American feeling. Like, I want to take a pill and make it go away, and I don't want to think about it again. You are going to have to put some effort into diabetes, that's for sure. Anyone else? I'm, I'm sorry. So I'll get you next. Hi. Not at all. No, I don't. No. I look at the food and I think, that looks like five units. It's experience. It happens for everybody. If, are there anybody in who's had diabetes for a long time? Do you count carbs? No. You, you, you don't, you, you, and it's experience. Plus, are you talking about for a little kid? Okay. What's your name, sweetheart? Does Hannah eat one slice of pizza on one Saturday and the next Saturday eat the whole pizza? No. So you know about what she's going to eat, right? So give her the insulin if she goes up and you say you give her five units of insulin. It goes up and you give her two more. She's little. It's probably not five. But say that happens. Then that next time you eat that food, seven. Start with seven. Because last time it took five and two. So start with seven. You are mostly not using enough insulin if your blood sugar is high. And, and I, and I want to say this, and I'm sorry if I missed out on, on saying it earlier. You have to, have to, have to, have to understand that you need to stop erring on the side of caution. You would much rather, much rather have a couple of lows a month than 28 highs. So you have to kind of come out and really try. So if it's, it, it, you have to trust that what you know is going to happen is going to happen. You can't say, oh, last time her blood sugar went up when I did this, but maybe it won't this time. Everyone has done that, right? Like I should put more insulin here. No, no, maybe I won't need it. You always need it. Always. You always need it. You are very frequently not using enough insulin. And you don't do that because you're scared of lows. And I get that. But after that meal takes seven units over and over again, stop starting with five. Like, stop. Just trust yourself. It's a huge leap, I, I swear. Just so experience and repetition with meals. Plus, kids eat about the same amount every time they eat. So in the end, you start looking. It's about the same over and over again. Sorry, I'm sorry? Wow, that's amazing. You had the same question? 
Does anyone else have the same question? Did you really? You just screwed with me. Okay, that's fine. Hi, go ahead. Yeah, exactly the same way. That's it. I don't do anything different. I just stay fluid. She needs carbs, she gets carbs. She needs insulin, she gets insulin. The thing you don't talk about a lot with activity is, um, is that um, adrenaline can drive up your blood sugar. So uh, I'll tell you a story that people seem to really find useful. My daughter was about eight years old. She was in some recreational basketball league that happened on Sundays. It was one of them where you came in and you were like in sweatpants and looked a wreck and everybody else did too. We all ignored what a mess we were, you know what I mean? And I'd bring her in with this blood sugar of 100 and she'd go out and play basketball and her blood sugar would go to 250. Happened every Sunday. So one day I just thought I can't keep letting this happen. But how do I bolus for adrenaline, right? And I realized one day, I'm like, I'm gonna stop thinking about the juice box like medicine, and I'll start thinking about it like food. Like, what would I do if I wanted her to drink that without her blood sugar going up? And I figured out how much insulin that would take. So one day, I got into the thing, her blood sugar's 100, and I bolused a unit and a half of insulin and sent her out to play basketball. And the adrenaline hit her, and that fight happened, and nothing moved. And had it not happened, because here's the interesting thing about adrenaline, when they played teams that weren't any good and she didn't think she could lose, her adrenaline never went up. It was only when she felt com like competitive that it went up. So I thought, if this is a bad team, I'll have her drink the juice, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that day they weren't a bad team and I didn't do it. But that one thing that I've shared with people over and over again, I get so much correspondence back. When you're looking for a way to be bold the first time, Try thinking about it that you're just pre-bolusing the juice box, and then I bet you'll find out you don't need the juice box, and that's how you're going to learn you're not using enough insulin. Before we go, because I promised I would do this, and I see Melissa standing here, it's Izzy's birthday, <laughs> and I thought it would be great to embarrass her and say happy birthday to her. So just not the whole song, but one, two, three, happy birthday, would you mind? One, two, three, happy birthday. <laughs> Sorry, Izzy. You were terrific. So was I. Have a good day. Thank you, Scott. Test, test, test. All right. Thank you again to Scott. A couple of announcements before we head out. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another show. If you're interested in having me out to your event or creating an event of your own where we just get together and talk about being bold with insulin and other management ideas, contact me through juiceboxpodcast.com. <laughs>